why then do the drug companies uh, market directly to the consumer via television? Because the, the 25-year-old woman goes to her gynecologist and says, hey, what about this? Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty good. And, and the doctor essentially, I think, shrugs his shoulders and says, yeah, that's what they're telling me. Give it a try. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a very sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from... Just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I uh, practice law and write a couple of blogs, including Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. I have a blog called May It Please the Court and a book out called How to Get Sued. Uh, Bob, today's show is again sponsored by Clio. It's a web-based practice management software at goclio.com for lawyers and Landy Insurance for legal malpractice at landy.com. Well, today's show is about... uh, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, who's facing a growing number of lawsuits claiming that the company concealed the health risks associated with the top-selling birth control pills, Yaz and Yasmin. Greg, women have reported uh, claims of harmful side effects such as blood clots, uh, and which have allegedly led to strokes and heart attacks after taking these pills. In some cases, there have been reports of women who have had damage to their gallbladder, liver, and pancreas, among other conditions. Well, just this week in U.S. District Court in San Francisco, a suit was filed in what the plaintiff's lawyers have labeled as one of the more tragic cases. A 39-year-old mother of twins uh, allegedly suffered a stroke and subsequently had a portion of her skull removed, leaving her mentally impaired, allegedly as a result of taking Yaz for only four weeks. We're going to take a look at that piece of litigation and some others sparking up around the country. Well, our first guest today is attorney Mike Denko from the Denko Law Firm, who's filed a federal lawsuit against the makers of Yaz and Yasmin. Mr. Denko has represented clients seriously injured in explosions, fires, falls, and collisions, and represents those injured by such dangerous drugs uh, as they've alleged is to be Yaz and Yasmin. He also co-writes the legal blog CAPersonalInjuryCaseLawNotes.com. And uh, it's called California Personal Injury Case Law Notes. And his, uh, also written by his colleague, uh, attorney Kristen Meredith. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mike Danko. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. And joining us also today is James O'Reilly, a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law, where he's taught since 1980. Professor Jim O'Reilly literally wrote the book on FDA regulation of pharmaceuticals and has been quoted by the U.S. Supreme Court on FDA law. He teaches products liability, FDA law, and other topics and is a consultant to an expert witness for defense and plaintiff law firms nationally. Uh, Within the American Bar Association, Professor O'Reilly chairs the FDA committee and is co-editor of the products liability newsletter for the ABA litigation section. He counsels large and small drug, biotech, device, and food firms, and previously worked at the Procter & Gamble Company as Associate General Counsel for 24 years. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jim O'Reilly. Thank you, Craig. Well, Bob, we should also note that our producers uh, for our show, Lawyer to Lawyer, have reached out to Bear Corporation to be on today's show, but we did not hear back from them in time for them to be on the show. 
Well, let's start off by discussing the lawsuits. Some reports so far say that there's somewhere between 70 or 75, maybe even 100 lawsuits so far. Mike, do you have any idea what the numbers are? Uh, No, because they're getting filed every day. But um, there's certainly, I think it's safe to say there's been over 100 lawsuits filed. And and frankly, I expect that there'll be, uh, in the near future, more than 1,000. And Mike, you, you represent Susan Galinas uh, in one of these cases. Tell us, tell us her story. Well, what happened was um, uh, in, uh, in May of 2008, uh, Susan started taking Yaz, uh, not for birth control, but rather to uh, kind of relieve some of her premenstrual uh, issues. And uh, four weeks later, uh, four weeks and one day, actually, she woke up with a headache and minutes later had a stroke, uh, left her partially paralyzed and um, caused some brain damage. As you mentioned at the outset, the doctors had to remove part of her skull to let the brain swell. Uh, she was in the hospital for about six months, and when it was all over, uh, she she did suffer brain damage. Um, she now uh, is not the same person she was. Uh, she has cognitive problems. Her personality is different. Her voice is different. She has vision problems, and she's still weak on one side. So it's really been devastating for her. Uh, she's got, uh, you know, four, what are now four-year-old uh, twins, and, you know, instead of being able to take care of them, uh, she has to be taken care of. Well, what, uh, Jim, what is, uh, you have a lot of experience having written the FDA regulations on pharmaceuticals, uh, and we understand that FDA has sent some warning letters to bear. Uh, regarding Yasmin and, and Yasmin advertising. In fact, I think I've seen some commercials where they've corrected some of the things that they had made some statements about. Can you tell us, the, give us the background for that? Sure. Since 1906, the legislation that today is our Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has been protecting consumers against false claims. And consumers have had that protection because we've had a vigorous Food and Drug Administration that's been able to examine the science behind each claim and uh, challenge those claims that are made without sufficient support. When the FDA makes a claim challenge, it typically does so in a warning letter. The warning letter says to the company, we think you don't have enough support for what you're doing, and we think that you should demonstrate that support in great detail and convince us that you've got enough support. And if you don't, you ought to retract that ad and do corrective advertising. There were, during the George W. Bush administration, a dramatic decrease in the number of these warning letters because the administration and its political appointees felt strongly that uh, the industry had been pushed too far by the FDA. And as a result, there were fewer and fewer actions in which the FDA became um, aggressive or enforcing and the like. One of the telling signs of change was at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago in August, the director of compliance for the FDA Center for Drugs, who is herself a very experienced lawyer, uh, stood up and said, new game in town, new sheriff. We're pursuing these very actively. We're not going to sit down and, and take it. We're going to be more aggressive. After her speech, a few weeks later, the new commissioner, Dr. Peggy Hamburg, said that we are going to go now more aggressively against people making these claims. We're going to be very um, assertive, and we're going to push toward uh, court cases uh, for those instances in which the companies haven't done enough to reveal or to disclose or to share 
uh, the uh, true adverse effects of what they're doing. So the mood has changed. The FDA is much more active today. Uh, and as a result of those changes, uh, there'll be some uh, probably a major increase in the number of challenges brought by the FDA against pharmaceutical advertising in the near future. Mike, what are the uh, allegations in, in your lawsuit against Bayer? Is it that 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 Bayer knew uh, of these potential side effects and, and did not disclose them, or that uh, these these side effects uh, are a result of the drug but but were unknown to Bayer? It's uh, the side effects were known, um, and then uh, they were understated, and the benefits of the drug were exaggerated. Um, really, what we're talking about, um, if I can. Uh, sort of go back a little bit. Please. All birth control pills are basically a formulation of different hormones. And what makes this birth control uh, pill, Yaz and Yasmin, different is that one of the hormones called drosperinone, or DRSP for short, uh, that particular hormone is a synthetic hormone, which means that it doesn't match up to the hormones that appear naturally in the human body. And that's the drug, that's the hormone that causes all the problems. And so what, what, is, what is your complaint alleging then? That, that, that Bayer was, was negligent uh, in, in failing to disclose that or, or in failing to disclose the consequences of that? Well, um, you know, they were, Bayer knew of the risks to, to go again to go back a little bit, um, what Bayer did is, and their predecessors did uh, back in uh, basically around 2000 and in the late 90s, they said, "All right, you know the birth control market is yet to be exploited. We can promote a birth control pill for use not just in birth control, but for all sorts of off-label uses to uh, uh, relieve uh, premenstrual anxiety, to improve." Uh, complexion to uh, uh, alleviate weight gain. Um, and basically, they wanted to create a lifestyle drug that would get a bigger market share. The problem is that if you do that, if you formulate a drug using what's called bioidentical hormones or hormones that look just like the ones that appear in the human body, uh, you can't get a patent on that. So what they did is they said, all right, let's come up, let's invent a drug that's different, or let's invent a hormone that's different from that which appears in the human body, and that's DRSP. So that allowed them to get a patent. The problem is that DRSP is no more effective than the bioidentical hormones or the old-fashioned old hormones, but there are additional risks. Uh, and that's why they put the hormone into the drug that's what causes the problems. They know it causes the problems. They minimize those, those risks, and they overstate the benefits. And that's exactly, by the way, what the FDA told them beginning in 2003. They said, your advertising says that DRSP has benefits that it doesn't have. And also, as far as we're concerned, as far as the FDA is concerned, we're aware of additional risks associated with this drug, and you're not telling people about it. So that was in 2003 they told Bayer to clean up the advertising. In 2008, they actually required Bayer to spend money, uh, about $20 million, on remedial advertising. And then again in 2009, they said, you're still not doing it. So that's kind of the history in a nutshell of, of the drug and, uh, and, and what the problems are with it. 
Jim, is this based more in advertising or is it the, the issues based more in the configuration of the drug? Well, I can't speak to the particular case, of course, uh, because Mike is the expert on the case. I can speak generally about the FDA process. The FDA's process looks at the advertising as part of the overall labeling. The labeling is the name used for the stuff that's on the package that's in that little flyer called the patient package insert and the other notes that are given to prescribers. The FDA is giving prescribers, the people that actually choose which pill goes to which patient, the FDA is giving the prescriber the opportunity to choose which pill might be appropriate for a particular patient, but the FDA is forcing each of the manufacturers to demonstrate to the FDA that the claims will be supportable. Most of the time, the claims are, in fact, supportable, and most of the time, the FDA has looked at the evidence as part of approving a new drug application. Every so often, though, the FDA has to go after a manufacturer and challenges the adequacy of the disclosure or the adequacy of the information provided And in those cases, the FDA will typically start with a warning letter and then progress to a court action if the um, action is so egregious that uh, mere, uh, dear doctor, I'm sorry I overspoke, uh, that kind of a a, a preventive or a respondive or remedial action may not be enough in all cases. And that's why the FDA reserves the right to go to court for injunctive relief if necessary. Jim, do you know whether any of these questions arose during the approval process for this drug? Uh, Well, generically, I can say in the approval process, the FDA looks at the particular ingredient, looks at what's known about the risks of that ingredient, and requires the labeling to include those known risks, including those that might be remote. So many warnings and so many communications about warnings um, have occurred that people are basically developing an immunity to it. Prescription drug advertising to consumers is a relatively new phenomenon beginning about 1997 and is now about $8 billion a year. It's gotten so pervasive that you can't watch the news in the evening without seeing pharmaceutical ads. My favorite story is a a true one. You can look it up on the Library of Congress website that a congressman this year introduced a piece of legislation directing the FDA not to require that male um, erectile dysfunction drugs include the adverse effect regarding four-hour erections. (laughs) Now, I don't know the basis, and I don't know whether Congress is going to pass his law, but the fact that he's offering that in the the House is an indication that uh, these uh, advertising approaches uh, have alienated some of the consumers who previously would have been relatively benign toward the advertising. Consumers with children watching TV, anyway. <laughs> Mommy, what's a four-hour erection? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Professor O'Reilly makes uh, a very good point. Um, Bear, on its labeling, discloses that there are potential side effects. And in some of their commercials, they disclose that there are potential side effects. But that is not what people need to hear with regard to this drug. All they need to hear is what would really affect their decision-making is a warning that says what you need to know about Yaz is that it's no more effective than other birth control pills, but it is more dangerous, period. That's an effective warning. It's, it's, it tells you, forget for a moment what the risks are, 
but you as a consumer need to know the risks of this drug are greater than another drug, and the benefits aren't there. This, this drug is no better than another safer drug. Of course, you know, they'll go on and on and list all of the risks that, you know, the strokes, clots, gallbladder disease. They list that, but the consumer doesn't know what to do with that because they assume that all the drugs have those risks. And in fact, they do. But what's important to know is this drug carries a greater risk. And it's up, uh, it's up to the prescriber. It's up to the physician to choose among the alternative drugs. And so the drug company can say, as long as we're giving enough information to the prescriber, he or she is acting as the screening agent or the expert, the learned intermediary between the consumer and the pharmaceutical maker. I was going to ask, uh, Jim, what kind of, or Mike, either one of you, what kind of defenses are available to bear in this lawsuit? Well, Professor O'Reilly just mentioned one is they'll say, hey, it doesn't matter what we tell the consumer. It doesn't matter what our uh, commercials say because it's up to the doctor to be the screening agent. Unfortunately, uh, the doctors do not read the studies themselves uh, word for word. They do not do their own research. They largely rely on what the drug manufacturers are telling them. And the drug manufacturers walk into their office with free samples and tell them this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You ought to give it a try. So then what happens? Why then do the drug companies uh, market directly to the consumer via television? Because the the 25-year-old woman goes to her gynecologist and says, hey, what about this? Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty good. And and the doctor essentially, I think, shrugs his shoulders and says, yeah, that's what they're telling me. Give it a try. Mike, the, the uh, this drug has been on the market for several years now, and yet it seems that there's been a surge in the number of lawsuits filed over the last year. Uh, why is that? What's What's brought uh, this greater number of lawsuits uh, to be filed because over, it's, over the um, it's come months. to light. Because, as we said at the outset, and which I will always say, there is a risk to every type of birth control. Um, I mean, that's in the nature of the drugs. Um, they can do great things. They can help. They can also harm. Uh, so, people who have been victimized by Yaz, that's one thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that that entitles them to bring a lawsuit. What entitles them to bring a lawsuit was when, when it comes to light that the risks associated with this drug is greater than other drugs and, and that that hasn't been disclosed. So what's coming to light now is that this drug causes more clotting, more strokes, more pulmonary embolisms, more, more, uh, more heart attacks than other birth control pills. That's, and that's coming to light now as a result of a couple of, uh, of a Danish study, a Dutch study, and just generally what people are seeing. So that's what, that's what the turning point was when, it, when what Bayer has known from the outset became more or less um, known to the public, and that is that DRSP is, uh, causes more clotting, more side effects, and has no corresponding benefit. There's an important aspect of the law that most people overlook. When a new drug comes on the market, the FDA does not judge whether it's going to be more effective than others. It's going to judge whether it's deemed to be reasonably safe in light of its efficacy. The FDA does not take off the market other products competing with it on the basis that they might be less safe or that a newer product might be more safe. So the market has uh, a lot of products on it, some of which will be more effective than others, and the communication of what's more effective is left to the manufacturer. Mike, should we be expecting to see any kind of multi-district uh, 
administration of these kind of cases now that there's been a hundred of them filed? What's the status of uh, some federal court consolidating these claims? In fact, it's already happened. Um, there is an MDL proceeding pending in the Southern District of Illinois. Uh, so uh, all of the cases, all the federal cases that are being filed uh, are being sent there. And in fact, uh, next month, uh, there's a uh, case management conference before Judge Herndon. What, what steps has Bayer taken so far in uh, asserting their defenses? I mean, in, in Merck's situation, Merck took these cases on one by one and started trying them uh, as they got challenged by uh, some pharmaceutical distribution that they were doing. What, what, is, what have you seen from Bayer so far? We haven't really seen any um, legal strategy. So far, it's been sort of PR where um, they just, you know, kind of the boilerplate, hey, we're concerned about um, the safety of our drug, and um, they have um, some spokesman saying, look, the, it, the risks of stroke, pulmonary embolism, blood clots, and so forth, using this drug are very, very, very small. Let's say, hypothetically, that it's twice that of another competing drug twice a very, very small number is a very, very small number. So that's kind of right now has been um, their response. Of course, I don't think that's, uh, that, that really uh, cuts it. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll take a look at the real-life stories of those who have allegedly suffered from the side effects of these birth control pills and a look at some additional lawsuits. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Protect your legal practice with Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency and feel confident that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price. Whether you are establishing a new firm, adding an attorney to your team, or exploring new options for your existing firm, Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency can match your specific needs with experience unmatched in the industry. Visit us at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Your practice deserves the best. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with attorney Mike Danko from the Danko Law Firm and James O'Reilly, who's a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati. What, um, Jim, what are the next steps for Bayer? Are they going to try and consolidate this? Uh, we've got the multi-district litigation pending. Uh, how are they seeking to deal with uh, this? Are we going to be seeing class actions being filed now? Well, let's ask Mike that because he's closer to it. Uh, I can say that under Rule 23, there's very likely to be some form of class action. The MDL is a good indicator that there will be a consolidation, at least for a portion of these cases, uh, for certain purposes. But uh, I'll leave it to you, Mike. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see class actions for a number of reasons. Um, Each one is going to be different because um, one thing is, for example, each of my clients have been prescribed uh, the drug for a different purpose. 
They, uh, some for on-label use, some for off-label use, that is, uses for which the drug has not been approved. Um, and, um, uh, again, as a result of the advertising, they each suffered different injuries uh, at different times. So I don't know if, uh, in this case, a class action will be appropriate, which is why I think so far everyone has filed individual uh, cases. Jim, you alluded earlier to the... Uh comment from uh, an official at the FDA that, that there's a new a new sheriff in town, I guess, on these cases. I, I, what what does that suggest? I, I mean, you've talked about some of the actions the FDA has taken already, but what, what else might it do uh, with respect to this drug? I don't know what FDA's plans are for Yaz, because when you're outside the, the negotiation, you don't know what the FDA is saying to Bayer. You don't know what Bayer is saying back to the FDA. But on a more generic sense, the FDA regulatory people no longer feel that they are constrained by the political appointees at the top of the FDA. They feel that they can be as aggressive as they need to be to compel the companies, companies in general, not specifically Bayer, to be more adherent to FDA's standards and policies for the disclosure of all the effects and all the benefits of the drug. Not not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying that, that the FDA's decisions about uh, enforcement uh, are driven by political concerns as much as by health concerns. I've been in the field 35 years. Uh, in an article I published in Cornell Law Review in 2008, I emphasized that the George W. Bush administration did more to control FDA enforcement to limit it and to assert preemption arguments more than any of the administrations during the previous uh, 30 years, and that ultimately that was harmful to the FDA's receipt of judicial deference for its positions. Again, I'm not speaking directly to Yaz or to a particular company, but I'm saying the FDA is being more aggressive now because they've got some ground to make up. They recognize that there was a period of time when, for various reasons, the administration was not friendly uh, toward the control of certain companies. Jim, it seems like that uh, we've heard that Bear has put about $20 million out in some corrective advertising. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, even I've seen some of those ads. Where, how do you think that's going to play with the juries when uh, Bear comes out and says, look, we told you it was a problem? Um, after the fact, uh, if the company takes an appropriate action, uh, it uh, is communicating sufficiently with, it, uh, with its uh, base of prescribers and the like, and uh, prescribing uh, uh, customers, if you customers the wrong word, the patients. If the company is communicating effectively to the patients and the prescribers, it's going to have a very positive effect relative to jurors. Jurors are becoming more and more jaded with more and more television advertising for prescription drugs because they're much more aware of risk issues than they'd ever been before. One of the upsides of this flood of $8 billion of advertising is people are now seeing prescription drugs as a trade-off. There will be some risk. There will be some benefit. And the prescriber is acting, they hope, in their best interest in choosing which product will be more effective uh, compared to its risk. But people are no longer believing that any drug they get from their prescribing physician will be 100% healthy or 100% happy. The consumers are past that point now. Mike, what do you think about the advertising that you see from the law firms soliciting people who have been exposed to asbestos, who've been exposed to this particular drug or that particular drug? I mean, I, I watch CNN News in the morning, and so I see these ads all the time. Is that having an adverse effect on 
uh, jurors who may be listening to this realizing that there is a risk with pharmaceutical drugs and they need to pay attention and read the disclosures from the pharmaceutical companies? Well, my problem with the disclosures from the pharmaceutical companies, and, and to go back to maybe your earlier question is, uh, what about the corrective advertising that Bayer has put out? I just don't think they're going to get anywhere with that because the corrective advertising is in itself a joke. I mean, if you watch that um, the commercial, which is still available on the Internet, you can look at it kind of whenever you want, it was written by Bears lawyers in conjunction with their marketing department. It's a lot of very clever, fast talk, double speak, and overwarning of risks that people really either know or don't care about. What's missing and what they continue to conceal, even in this corrective advertising, is that the drug is more dangerous than other competing drugs, but is no more effective. If a consumer has that particular piece of information, that's the only thing they need, they will say, I will choose another drug. And until that disclosure is made, I think any of the disclosures are ineffective because you want a disclosure that you can act on. You want a disclosure, not that, hey, there are risks here. You want, the question is, what do I need to know to make an informed decision about whether I'm going to use this drug? And in this case, what you need to know is that the drug is not any more effective than the competitors, but is more dangerous. That's what you need to know, and, and they don't want to say that, obviously, because if they did say that, how many people would be taking uh, Yaz or Yasmin. And, it, and it, right now, they're, you know, it's a, last year they sold $1.8 billion of Yaz and Yasmin, and, and Bayer is going to fight all the way, and they're not going to tell people the truth because they want to hold on to their market share. Gentlemen, we're just about at the end of our time for this program, uh, and we would like to give you each an opportunity to conclude with your final thoughts on this topic uh, and also to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you uh, so, Mike Danko, let's let's start with you. Well, you know, I guess um, you have to ask, what is, what is it we're doing? What is it we're trying to accomplish? And uh, what we're trying to accomplish, number one, is getting the word out to women. Women are being bombarded by these advertisements, uh, and it's affecting what they do, and it's affecting their health. And so what we're trying to do is uh, get the word out to them so they stop taking this drug. If there's any way we can, we want to get the drug off the market. Uh, and, uh, and lastly, of course, I want to get compensation for some of the women who have been injured by this drug, whose life has been changed. Uh, so some of our clients now, um, Bayer just kind of leaves them. Susan Galena, she needs, she needs help. She needs cognitive retraining. She needs uh, help around the house. She needs help so that someday, maybe, she can get back to work, not in her old job, but in another job. And uh, Bear is doing nothing to help these people. And uh, how might listeners follow up with you if they'd like to do that? Uh, they can uh, contact, get a hold of me through my website, which is uh, dankolaw.com. Uh, and I have a new blog, which is uh, yazontrial.com, which will have information about uh, the drug. Mike, thanks a lot. Jim O'Reilly, how about your final thoughts? My final thoughts are these are very complex, very difficult cases to win. There are many costs involved, including the evidence, the experts, the Daubert uh, hearings and the like, and you'll be in this for a long time if you get into it. So these are for a more sophisticated, more specialized torts lawyer rather than for the average um, uh, person. This is a very complex field of litigation. It can do a wonderful job for particular clients, but in general, it is more difficult 
than most lawyers perceive it to be from the outside. Be careful before you take these cases and be very thoughtful as you approach both the settlement issues and the uh, issues of going ahead in either group, MDL, or class settings. If people wanted to reach me, my textbook is called Food and Drug Administration. It's published by westgroup.com, Thompson West. And my uh, email is j-a-m-e-s dot o-r-e-i-l-l-y O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, at uc, that's University of Cincinnati, dot edu. Thank you. Well, thank you both for being on the program today. There was a great discussion. Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And let me add my sincere thanks to our guests for taking the time to be with us today. And let me also remind our listeners that they can also find this program and all of our past programs in the podcast library on iTunes. Craig, I look forward to talking next week. Sounds good, Bob. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. And when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. I'll do that. And so will I. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.